0: Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Uh, the hardest
1: question to answer in critical care is will my patient benefit from more fluid? Your only other option is this a crash intubation. It'll
0: get you most of the way there for most patients. 15 liters of nasal prongs, 15 liters through the BVM, 15 centimeters of water for the CPAP.
2: Don't squeeze the bag too many times.
1: Extremely important to tell yourself that again and again and again. In the old days, when we used to get 14,
0: 16 liters, then it really mattered which one you chose. DSI is essentially procedural sedation with the procedure being pre-oxygenation.
1: Your eyes are goggling back and forth. At this point, you could do whatever you want. Ketamine is that world all of its
0: own. I never thought this day would ever become a reality. But alas, here at ASEP 2014 conference in Chicago, and in this episode on Critical Care Pearls for the Community ED Doc, we have not only the world's most influential critical care educator, Scott Weingart, but also... Canada's Walking Encyclopedia of Emergency Medicine, and my personal mentor, Walter Himmel. Yes, folks, the day has come where I have the pleasure and honour of bringing together truly two of the brightest minds in emergency medicine to educate you on a topic that, because of Dr. Weingart's amazingly informative EM Crit podcast, has become front and centre in emergency medicine education everywhere. What we'll attempt to accomplish today is to take some of the most important innovations in critical care over the past five years or so, a couple of which Dr. Weingart has literally discovered himself, and translate them into an easily digestible form for the practicing community eMERGE doc. Because not all of us have had the opportunity to train in critical care. And in fact, some of us have had very little critical care training at all. Nonetheless, we're expected to be experts in the care of critically ill patients in the ED. You know, it wasn't too long ago in Canada, even when I was starting out, that most intubations in the ED were done by anesthetists on call. We've come a long way since then. Not only do we pretty much do all the intubations now, but more and more, we're managing these critically ill patients for hours before the intensivist takes over. We own these patients. So to help hone your knowledge of some of the most important critical care concepts and skills like apneic oxygenation, delayed sequence intubation, post-intubation analgesia and sedation, fluid management in sepsis, and update you on some recent important articles like the Sepsis Arise trial and Dr. Weingart's hot-off-the-press delayed-sequence intubation study, I'm so pleased to introduce to you my friends and mentors, Dr. Scott Weingart and Dr. Walter Himmel. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. The honor is all mine. Awesome. Now, before we start into our first case... I'd like to give our listeners a sense of where you practice and what resources you have available to you at your shop so that our listeners can get a better idea of how to incorporate what they hear on this podcast into their practice. So, Dr. Weingart, what's your setup like?
1: I am directing a 25-bed ED critical care unit at Janus General with ICU-level nursing staffing, every piece of equipment you could ever imagine, and a dedicated team of residents who are only doing ED critical care with me during their shifts. Wow. Score. And Walter? I am a community emergency
2: physician. I've been doing this for almost 40 years. I work in hospitals that are halfway between an academic center and a peripheral, peripheral center. So we do teaching. We've got students, but we're basically the centers of the community.
0: So with that in mind, our listeners can think about what their setup is and then how to incorporate what we're going to learn on this podcast into their practice. So let's jump in with our first case. This was a patient I saw in my first year of practice back in 2001. A 72 year old man with a history of CHF, diabetes, and hypertension was wheeled into our resuscitation room. He had a four day history of worsening shortness of breath, cough productive of green sputum, and high fever. His wife called 911 as he was getting increasingly confused and having a lot of difficulty breathing. On arrival, he appeared to be in moderate to severe respiratory distress, satting eighty six percent on a non rebreather. His heart rate was one hundred and thirty, blood pressure was ninety five over forty, respiratory rate was thirty two, and he had a temp of thirty eight point two. So, when it comes to RSI, we are going to go through RPs preparation, pre oxygenation, pre paralysis, placement, and post intubation management. But the second step, pre-oxygenation, has traditionally involved administering oxygen via a non-rebreather for at least three minutes of tidal volume breathing or eight vital capacity breaths to help maximize the oxygenation during the apneic period when the patient is paralyzed. In most EDs, this will provide a few minutes of O2 sat above 90%, just enough time for you to get that tube in. So Dr. Weingart, this patient was satting 86% despite a non-rebreather some of us might elect to abandon pre and pre-medication and go straight to paralysis and intubate because we want to get that darn positive pressure ventilation going ASAP to improve oxygenation. Why is this not ideal? And how do you suggest we pre-oxygenate patients like this who aren't oxygenating well on a non-rebreather? It's a great question. It's
1: what I've devoted the past few years to working on with my colleague, Rich Levitan. And there's a few things inherent in the question. The first thing I want to make a point of is that non-rebreather masks do not deliver sufficient oxygen for pre-oxygenation. They deliver 60% FiO2, and you will be cutting down on your reservoir of oxygen. So a non-rebreather alone should never be used for pre-oxygenation unless you put the flow rate well beyond the 15 liters per minute we're used to. And we don't recommend that anymore. What we recommend on all patients, and this is my friend Rich Levitan and I, is a nasal cannula at 15 liters per minute and a non-rebreather at 15 liters per minute. And this will deliver well over the 90% of fraction-inspired oxygen you need to adequately pre Now, I take it from the case you're giving me, Anton, I put them on the nasal cannula and the non-rebreather, and they're still satting 86%. What now? Well, the standard answer, as you alluded to, is to just RSI them and hope you could bag them up during the apneic period. A lot of patients die that way, and we have evidence for this in the ICU literature, we have evidence for this in the ED literature. It's not a safe way to intubate. If they go from 86 to 70%, they're at a critical desaturation point where they may have dysrhythmias and bradyasystolic arrest. You don't want that to happen. You don't want to let the laryngoscope be a murder weapon. So wouldn't it be better to have their oxygen sats up to well above 95% before intubating? Well, the same way you're going to get them up after you tube them, which is putting them on PEEP, could be used as a pre-oxygenation technique to get them safely to the point where they'll be able to take your intubation meds and not die during the apneic period. So CPAP for pre-oxygenation is what we extol for this patient. And the way to do it is, if you have a non-invasive machine, great, put them on it. If you have a ventilator, they all have PEEP settings, put them on it. If you don't, then get a BVM with a PEEP valve, and that will also allow expiratory CPAP It'll work a lot better if you have that nasal cannula on underneath. And this guy should be satting well
0: above 95% at the time of intubation. Okay, so the first take-home point with that is put the nasal cannula on as well as the non-rebreather, and I'll call it the Weingart 15 and 15 rule, where you want 15 liters of nasal prong, 15 liters of non-rebreather. And then you alluded to using positive pressure, and there's a few choices when it comes to positive pressure that we're going to get into detail with. Let's back up a little bit. Dr. Himmel, why is pre-oxygenation so important in the first place?
2: If you're breathing room air, you've only got about 500 cc's of oxygen in your lung. And if your sats are anywhere under 93%, that's about the most you're going to have in your lung, it's not even less. If you sedate a person and you paralyze a person, they've stopped ventilating and they've stopped oxygenating. In approximately 30, 40, 60 seconds, perhaps, their stats are going to plummet like crazy because they run out of oxygen. You don't want that to happen. The ideal situation is you'd love a patient to be paralyzed, not breathing, and give you five or 10 minutes of free time. There's only one way to do it. Their partial pressure of oxygen has got to be as close to 760 as possible. Uh, You're never going to get there because of water and carbon dioxide, but you can get pretty close. So rather than having 500 cc's of O2 in your lungs, you want about 3 liters, which means every bit of nitrogen, as much as possible, has got to be replaced with oxygen. Once you've done that, the patient can stop breathing, stop ventilating, stop oxygenating. Their PCO2 will go up, but their O2 stat's going to be at 100%, 100%, 100%, as their PO2 goes down from 500 to 450 to 300 to 200, and you've got time. So we basically know in a healthy young fellow like you, Anton, if your oxygen is saturating your lungs, you have got about seven, eight minutes. And a little baby who's a month or two old, you've got maybe two minutes, two and a half minutes. And an obese fellow with obstructive sleep apnea, he's got maybe two or three minutes. And sadly, in a sick person who's very ill, maybe even less, but you're gonna have a lot more than 30 or 45 seconds. Once your set plummets to 88, 85, 70, you're not breathing venous blood. You're going to get acidotic, you're going to get arrhythmias, and you're going to have a cardiac arrest any
1: moment.
0: That's brilliant. So two different ways of saying the same thing.
1: The physiology versus the practical aspects. And you need to understand both if you want to be a competent emergency
0: physician. Couldn't agree more. So just a little review here. Traditionally, in our RSI algorithm, we pre-oxygenate for three minutes of tidal volume, or eight vital capacity breaths, with a non-rebreather. But what we're suggesting here is that a non-rebreather will only supply about 60% O2, which is not enough for preoxygenation. And so every time you think about reaching for that non-rebreather to pre-oxygenate, first put on nasal prongs at 15 liters of O2 to get closer to that 100% O2 being delivered to your patient. Now, if your patient is still satting less than 93 with nasal prongs plus a non-rebreather, rather than jumping straight to induction paralysis and intubation, which might result in prolonged dangerously low oxygen saturation in your patient, add positive pressure by either placing a bag valve mask with a peep valve attached to it, or place the patient on CPAP while keeping the nasal prongs on. This will allow adequate oxygenation during the pre-oxygenation period and during the apneic period once you've paralyzed the patient, even if the patient is obese, really ill, and has lots of comorbidities and they tend to desaturate quickly. Remember, if you only have a non-rebreather on a patient who's satting in the 80s and you decide to go straight to induction paralysis and intubation, you run the risk of worsening oxygenation saturation and causing a bradycystolic arrest. Using these simple tools, you can not only get the patient up to a decent SAT, but you'll be able to buy more time to perform a methodical, calm, and expert intubation. So, Dr. Wongart, now that we have an understanding of why preoxygenation is so important, can you run us through the practical steps you suggest? You already alluded to using nasal prongs in a, a non rebreather. Let's talk about pre-oxygenation and then we'll talk about delayed sequence intubation.
1: Okay. So every single patient, we get their head of the bed up. And if they're not in spinal precautions, we'll just actually put them in semi-fowlers by, you know, lifting the head of the bed to at least 20, 30 degrees. Or if they are in spinal precautions, we'll put them in reverse Trendelenburg to get that same head up. The lungs were never made to function supine. We're not made to work that way and you'll get more atelectatic. It'll also help you when you actually go to intubate. Your exposure is better at 20 or 30 degrees head up. So every patient gets positioned that way in addition to all the standard positioning you do for your intubation. And then like I said, every single patient I intubate gets a nasal cannula at 15, no matter which route I'm going. And then if they are patients who are not experiencing physiologic shunting, then a non-rebreather at 15 on top of that will get you well over the 90% FiO2 you need to get the time that Walter alluded to. And Ben Yamasgraf showed it. You take healthy patients, you'll get extended times if you get a greater than 90% FiO2. If you put them on just a non-rebreather, you're not going to get the times Walter's talking about. If they're there, if they're at the 100, now we're going to breathe the three minutes, tidal volume breathing, just like you said, Anton. I don't bother with the vital capacity breaths anymore because my patients don't cooperate. So I just give them three minutes. I got plenty of stuff to prepare in those three minutes. So I put the oxygen on first and then get all that stuff done I need to do before the intubation. But if they're not saturating greater than 95%, greater than 93%, then you got to do more. And that means you need a device that will increase mean airway pressure. And you can do that in a host of ways. And we've gone through some of them. BVM with a peep valve, a ventilator, a non-invasive machine. But you got to find some way to keep the space between their inspirations at a higher than atmospheric pressure.
0: So let's talk a little bit more about your options in terms of what kind of non-invasive ventilation should we be using depending on what we have and depending on what the patient. I mean, is there some sort of algorithm where if they're satting above a certain amount, then they only need X? If they're satting below a certain amount or a time-based algorithm – how, how do you decide which one? Because we, we don't wanna be having to think about this too much yep. in in the heat of the moment. Absolutely. We wanna have kind of an idea of what to go to when. We're talking about a community ED. So I don't
1: think they're gonna have ventilators standing by at every bedside ready to go. Respiratory may bring them or not. And I don't think we should even talk about it. So let's eliminate using the ventilators, using the non-invasive machines. Let's go dead simple. Every patient gets one of two strategies. Either they get the nasal cannula non-rebreather, and that should work for your patient with healthy lungs, or you should have a peep valve on your BVM. You put them on a nasal cannula at 15 and you hold the mask over their face with the peep valve set to whatever it takes to get their saturation greater than 95%. You're not bagging. You're just holding the mask on their face with the nasal cannula underneath and a peep valve on the BVM. And that will generate high flow CPAP with no machinery, no complex stuff. You're gonna need the BVM there anyway. And you're gonna want a peep valve on these patients for the case comes where you have to reoxygenate them during the intubation. Just
0: one little practical thing about the BVM and the nasal cannula. How do you get a good seal? I mean, if you're, of course, every time we use BVM, we're thinking we need a good seal, we need a good seal. You know, we have that person with a big beard and we're worried about the seal. Uh, We have someone who's really skinny and we can't get that good seal. Now you're introducing nasal prongs, and I imagine because of the diameter of the nasal prongs, you're going to have trouble getting a good seal. How do you get a good seal when you're using that combination of tools? It's a great question,
1: and it's something we stress. You do not want to use high-flow nasal cannulae. These are new devices that are available that could give insane flows, 40, 50, 60 liters per minute, but they're thick. They absolutely will mess up your mass seal. We're talking just run-of-the-mill, crappy, $1, Canadian or U.S., nasal cannulae, and these will not affect your seal. The tubing on those is definitely narrow enough that the pillow of the mask will allow them to be there and still maintain an airtight seal. We've never had a problem with it. We've done it hundreds of times, and the standard nasal cannula will not affect your mask seal. In
2: terms of the culture of the emergency department, the places I work in Toronto, getting an RT to come down and putting a non-invasive mask on a confused patient is going to be politically impossible at this moment. So I agree with Scott's viewpoint not realistic at the very moment in the centers I'm talking about. Now, a few things about the BVM, generally speaking. Number one, if you're not breathing and not squeezing the bag, the patient's getting zero oxygen. The reason you need the nasal prongs is to keep enough oxygen between the patient and the mask to maintain CPAP. So that's extraordinarily important. So nasal prongs isn't just about giving oxygen. It's about creating enough volume of oxygen so you truly have CPAP. In plain words, when you're not squeezing the bag and the patient isn't breathing, you still have CPAP. Without nasal prongs, you only have CPAP for a moment when you're squeezing the bag or the patient's breathing. Apart from that, you've got nothing. Uh, Secondly, and this is going to take a lot of education of of the person who's helping you out, the moment that mask comes off the face, You've just taken a reasonably good system and reduced it to useless. Keeping a BVM in place is a two-man job. It's it's two hands from one person and the other person's directing, doing what he has to do. So you've got to tell your assistant to keep the mask firmly applied to the face. Do not take it off the face.
0: Now when it comes to these nasal prongs, you're saying just use this the regular old crappy nasal prongs. Now normally we don't put it above five liters in an awake patient. This patient might be confused. They might be slightly obtunded, but they're still awake. So that's kind of going against everything we ever learned about nasal prongs. Walter, have you tried putting 15 liters of nasal prongs up your nose? I tried it a couple of days ago in Toronto.
2: How can I put it? It was a blast. <laughs> it, it works. I thought I was going to go flying. But here's the bottom line. If your patient has an O2 set of 80 to 82% or 79%, and I've been there many times, and you're about to intubate that patient, the chance of death is phenomenally high. In the absence of a nasal prong 15 liters per minute, your BVM is not
1: going to be adequate at all. Yeah, we had this exact objection from our respiratory therapists and some of our pulmonary critical care docs, never go beyond six on a nasal cannula is what they told us. So first I did for two hours, I left it on and my head didn't explode. And then my residents did the same. And now there's an article in press in Annals of Emergency Medicine demonstrating the safety of 15 liters per minute nasal cannula. These patients had no adverse sequelae. Their heads did not fall off. It is safe. It's not fun but it is not markedly more uncomfortable than any of the other crap we're doing during the peri-intubation.
0: All right, so that's some of the practical considerations when it comes to nasal prongs and the BVM. Just a couple other questions about applying positive pressure ventilation in these patients. Don't you worry about blowing up the stomach when you're cramming in that CPAP? So I don't use greater than 15
1: centimeters of water of CPAP. And the lower esophageal sphincter opens around 22 to 23 centimeters of water. Once you pop it open, then the further opening pressure is much lower. So the idea is to not pop it open in the first place, which is why I don't use any inspiratory pressure on top of my CPAP and why I don't exceed that 15. At those levels, I feel this is safe. Now, if your patient's already been vomiting, uh, then you might want to consider placing an NG tube or doing something to evacuate any potential air because their lower esophageal sphincter is already opened. But in a patient with a pristine lower esophageal sphincter and you don't go beyond 15, it should be safe. And the studies looking at this have borne that out with an absence of complications.
0: We're going to have to change the 15 and 15 rule to the 15 and 15 Ah, and 15 rule. So it's the triple 15 rule. I love it. I didn't even think of that. 15 liters of nasal prongs, 15 liters through the BVM, 15 centimeters of water for the CPAP.
2: Yeah, so so this is very subtle. We're talking about CPAP, not BiPAP. So the CPAP is produced by the nasal oxygen. But what you don't want to be doing is squeezing that bag sixty times a minute. You want to be squeezing that bag four, five, six, seven times a minute. If you absolutely have to go to eight, that's fine, but no more than that. Every time you squeeze that bag, you've basically got inspiratory pressure, and we let go. It's expiratory pressure. You don't need lots of inspiratory pressure if you've got that nasal prong going at 15 liters per minute. So don't squeeze the bag too many times. Extremely important to tell yourself that again and again and again. Don't get excited. Squeeze it real slow.
1: Now, Walter's point is directly agreeing with Rich Levitans. They both like to squeeze a few times during the apneic period. And I got no problem with that. In Walter's hands, I think this is perfectly safe. In the hands of an overly enthusiastic registrar resident, even those four times may be deleterious. And I just tell people, don't give any inspiratory ventilations. Just let the nasal cannula and CPAP do its work during the apneic period. If you want to give a few breaths, absolutely fine. Do not give the 60 Walter just alluded to. Right, so so
2: to the neophyte, I'm just going to repeat this. You've got a patient who's distressed, you've got a BVM tightly applied, you've got a valve on it to maintain CPAP, and you've got nasal prongs, and you're not squeezing the bag.
0: Okay, so just to drive it home one more time, first, you position the patient with their head up 20 to 30 degrees. Even if they're in spinal precautions, elevate that head of the bed by using reverse Trendelenburg. Then place 15 liters of nasal prongs on all of these patients followed by a non-rebreather. If they aren't satting above 93% with the double 15 liter setup, then hold a BVM with a peep valve sealed to the patient's face over the nasal prongs, but don't bag. Let them breathe. Even after they're rendered apneic from your paralytic, you have the option of not squeezing the bag at all, Or just squeezing very slowly, like four to eight breaths per minute. And don't forget the triple 15 rule. 15 liters of oxygen by nasal prongs, 15 liters of oxygen by non-rebreather, and 15 centimeters of water by a BVM with a peep valve or by a CPAP machine. So we've talked a bit about how to get a good seal. We talked about the two-handed technique. Some people use Vaseline around the edge of the BVM to get a good seal, Dr. Weingart, what's your take on using Vaseline for this purpose?
1: Yeah, I I wouldn't engage in that, and I've heard of this, and the bearded patients always present the problem. In those circumstances where I have any trouble uh, getting a good interface between the patient, I probably would use something called RSA, Rapid Sequence Airway. It was coined by my friend Darren Brody, and the idea is you just proceed with your normal intubation meds, but instead of having to wait the apneic time, instead of having to have that apneic period be a point of death on the patient, you just immediately After pushing those meds, place a superglottic airway and then do your preoxygenation and your CPAP, if necessary, through a superglottic airway like a laryngeal mask airway or a King LT. And then, once the patient is fully preoxygenated, then you'd progress to formal intubation. You'd deflate the cuff on that superglottic, take it out, and intubate the patient. Uh, But that's very, very rare that I have to move to that because I can't get a good seal
0: on a CPAP mask. Dr. Himmel, can you explain to our listeners. What is apneic oxygenation? What do we need to know about apneic oxygenation?
2: So what's apneic oxygenation all about? It's about basically that minute or 2 minutes before you're about to intubate them. The patient is not even breathing. Their oxygen source truly is the nasal prong and the bag valve mask and the ventilator set the CPAP is all about maintaining continuous positive airway pressure. And after a few minutes the row two are 95, 96%. But remember, if they're about to crash in the next two seconds, this doesn't count.
0: Intubate now. Dr. Himmel, can you just clarify for us what are the indications for apneic oxygenation? Now that we have an idea of what it is, what are the indications for it? Every patient that you're intubating needs,
2: for the purpose of safety, if at all possible, to have O2Sat of at least 93%, 95%. That buys you time. Most patients are going to be fine with the non rebreather and nasal prongs. What's the indication? It's very simple. You want to intubate a patient. They're sick. They're not going to crash in the next 30 seconds. But your O2Sat is 88% or 85%. It's not a safe situation. So any patient who isn't going to crash in the next 10 seconds, whose O2 sats aren't at least 93%, needs oxygenation. And when you paralyze them, they need ongoing oxygenation until you're about to intubate them, at which point the mask comes off the mouth. (laughs) Otherwise, you can't intubate them, but nasal prongs stay on. So here's the situation. O2 sats are unacceptable, 85%. You've got time and the nasal prong that you're using at five liters a minute and the under breather mask isn't working. You can't get a status of 90%. This is going to save you.
1: When I was an ICU fellow on patients who were brain dead, we'd do apnea testing and you'd just stick some oxygen tubing down their ET tube and you'd have to keep them oxygenating to see if you could generate a high enough PaCO2 that a normal patient would breathe and they don't breathe and then you'd declare them not passing their apneic test and you, it's one further determination along the brain death path. We weren't doing this on healthy patients. We were wasting the potential to keep them oxygenating during the apneic period. The nasal prongs I want you to put on for pre-oxygenation will do a fantastic job of apneic oxygenation. It will keep the patient oxygenating during the apneic period. The alveoli will keep sucking down oxygen from the bronchiotracheal tree as well as the oropharynx if there's a high FIO2 source. If the patient needed CPAP, For pre-oxygenation, then apneic oxygenation won't work unless you maintain the CPAP. And that's why we keep the BVM with the PEEP valve on even during the apneic period. On a patient who doesn't have shunt physiology, then the nasal cannula alone is enough. We have a randomized controlled trial now demonstrating nasal
0: cannula works in high risk intubations. Dr. Weingart's going to drive home the point that you need to keep those nasal prongs plus the BVM with the PEEP valve or the CPAP machine on during the apneic period. Apneic oxygenation will not
1: work on a patient who required CPAP to pre unless you leave the CPAP on during the apneic period, which means that BVM with a P-valve, with a two-hand mass seal, not letting any gas leak, or else apneic oxygenation will not work because the alveoli will become atelectatic, and you will not get the advantages. So just like you need the CPAP for pre you need it for apneic oxygenation as well. That is absolutely
2: crucial. In patients with shunt physiology, and that's everybody with heart failure and everybody with pneumonia, you're never going to get the O2 SAT up without CPAP. So you've got to really prepare to use your BVM uh, with a PEEP valve or to use a non-invasive mask, one of those two. Well, you'll know when you, when it's not going properly, the O2 SAT's not going to go up.
0: So I bet our listeners are wondering at this point how this 72-year-old delirious patient who wasn't satting well on a non-breather was actually managed. So luck would have it that the first attempt at intubation failed. So what did I do? I then placed an oropharyngeal airway, applied a bag valve mask, instructed the RT to get a good seal while I bagged. We repositioned the patient, got out a bougie, gave it a second try. The O2 sat was now 75%. The second attempt also failed because the bougie kept on bending. I then placed an LMA, but again, couldn't get the O2 sat up. Until that time, I had never done a crike before. But I did know that if I was going to attempt one, I'd better do it now rather than wait until it was too late. Well, suffice to say that the crack didn't go smoothly and the patient coded and despite our valiant attempts, ended up dying. Now that I know about delayed sequence intubation and apneic oxygenation, I think back on this case often and think, you know, I could have saved this patient's life. So Dr. Waringart, can you run us through how to perform a delayed sequence intubation And how delayed sequence intubation may have saved this gentleman's life? Well, I don't want to answer that last part, Anton, because I think you did everything right. And within the
1: standards of practice, and I don't think you provided anything except optimal care to your patient. But let's talk about DSI as an alternative. And it's really just now having some evidentiary base. So anyone doing it beforehand was really beyond the evidence justifying the technique. But I think now that we have an article published, maybe this is something people can consider. And it's really for a very niche case. It's for the patient who is altered but in a way that they're flailing about and preventing you from doing what you wanna do. A lot of the patients who come in who need to be intubated that are altered are just comatose and they don't fight you at all. You don't need delayed sequence intubation for them. So these
0: are the patients that are pulling at their masks, pulling at their IVs, we've all seen those patients. Absolutely,
1: agitated delirium, whether from the underlying medical condition or from hypercapnia or from hypoxemia. And these patients are a real uh, struggle because you want to pre-oxygenate them. You want to do everything right. You want to prepare for your intubation in a calm and psychologically sound manner. And instead, everyone gets frantic and the natural course is to just push the meds that will stop the patient from fighting you and then hope you could bag them up. And that was the standard RSI. And that's why we proceeded to it. It's all we had. I felt very out of control in those circumstances. And my whole role as an ED intensivist is to feel I'm in control of the patient's physiology. That's when I'm happy, is when I am calm and collected and then my team is calm and collected and we feel like we understand what's going on with the patient and we treat it. Well, this was not one of those circumstances. So there had to be something better. And since I am uh, maybe the biggest supporter, secondary to Min Kong, of ketamine for everything, uh, it was a natural jump to knowing that we could give ketamine and get beautiful adult procedural sedation, why not just use that same procedural sedation for the procedure of pre So you'll have all your intubation equipment, all of your difficult airway equipment, all of your intubation meds prepared and ready at the bedside. And then you go to this agitated patient and you push a dissociating dose of ketamine. That dose maybe a lot lower than you're used to from standard adult procedural sedation or especially pediatric procedural sedation. In a critically ill adult, generally one to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine will dissociate the patient. And there's no use to giving more ketamine than that. And it's actually some downside. A lot of the complications are dose dependent, like hypersalivation. So ketamine is a first pass drug, meaning you see the results almost instantly. So give one milligram per kilogram of ketamine if the patient's dissociated, great. If they're not, give another 0.5, wait a few seconds, give another 0.5, give another 0.5 until the patient just stops fighting. They lie back on the stretcher. Their eyes are goggling back and forth. At this point, you could do whatever you want. You could pre You could do an NG tube.
0: You could get the patient positioned the way you want. So in your experience, so we've got this patient who's desatting. You know, let's take our 72-year-old. You know, I find... It's psychologically very difficult to stop yourself and say, okay, we're just going to give some ketamine. I mean, this takes a bit of time to do and the patient's not satting well. I mean, what's been your experience so far in terms of getting that set up? So
1: you have to put on the devices you would have put on if the patient wasn't fighting you. So if a nasal cannula plus non-rebreather gets them up immediately, great. Otherwise, nasal cannula plus some form of CPAP provision device is what you want. And once they're on those They come up very rapidly. The problem is these patients are breathing room air and they're breathing ZEEP, zero PEEP, until you change that. And the ketamine is what allows you to change that circumstance because otherwise they're not allowing it. Yeah, to put it simply, if your patient is totally insane,
2: unmanageable, out of control, and you can't do anything, rather than paralyzing them, attempt to intubate immediately, give them ketamine. So here are your two options. Attempt to intubate somebody and paralyze somebody whose O2 has 85% or less, or give them ketamine. Once you give them ketamine, the breathing will continue. They'll just become more cooperative. This is all about producing a cooperative patient that you can now oxygenate.
1: And the delirium is causing the inability to put on the devices that will cause good oxygenation.
2: We can-
0: So Dr. Weingart, I was very pleased to see that your study finally was published in Annals, the Delayed Sequence Intubation Study. It just came out on October twenty second. By the time this podcast airs, it'll probably come out on paper, which Walter still receives in his mail, (laughs) all the paper (laughs) journals. All three hundred (laughs) and (laughs) fifty pounds. So Dr. Weingart, can you give us a quick rundown of what the study showed? What, what was it about? Sure.
1: So in a multi-center trial, some folks in the Netherlands and uh, two places in New York City, we took 62 patients who we felt needed DSI. We tried to do standard pre We begged them to keep the mask on. We tried to hold the mask on. You know, the standard stuff you do. And they failed that. So we used the ketamine in the same doses I just mentioned. Those patients, a majority of them, needed non-invasive ventilation, CPAP. Uh, some of them, non-rebreather is enough once they let us keep it on. And once we let those three minutes of tidal volume breathing go down to really wash out all of the nitrogen from the lungs, we would administer the paralytic of the clinician's choice, either sucks or rock. We would wait the 45 to 60 seconds of necessary apneic time for those meds to kick in. Then we'd intubate them safely. And the primary outcome was the difference between the maximal pre with the non-DSI, you know, just begging, pleading, holding, versus the oxygenation level right before we push the paralytic, so after the full pre-oxygenation with the ketamine on board. And in all but two patients, it stayed the same or increased, meaning they either improved their oxygenation or they allowed denitrogenation because, again, just because their SATs weren't bad doesn't mean that they had built up that reservoir of oxygen that Walter had talked about. So you need both. You need their SATs to come up, and if they're already up, you need them to tolerate breathing that high FiO2 to wash out the nitrogen from their lungs. So we had no complications. Two patients actually avoided intubation altogether, but none of that is what I cared about most. What I cared about most is 32 of the patients had pre-DSI saturations below 93%. Those are the patients that try real hard to die on me during the apneic period. And in all of those patients, their oxygen saturation went up with DSI. Okay,
0: and they went up by about
1: 10% or so? I think the number was eight-something overall, and in the patients who before DSI, they were below that 93% all, but I think a handful of those patients increased to greater than 93%, which from the work out of San Diego by Dan Davis means those patients had a much less chance of
0: dying or having morbidity during their intubation. DSI is essentially procedural sedation with the procedure being pre-oxygenation.
2: A DSI is a way of taking a, an impossible situation with an impossible patient who's impossible to manage and making that person manageable for the next two or three minutes until we get him oxygenated. So that word delay refers to the creation of a one or two minute window in which you're using a drug and the only drug is ketamine, not Versed, not adivan, not Atomidate, not propofol. It's ketamine. The only drug we have to use in this situation buys us a minute or two of cooperative oxygenation where we can manage the patient. Because your only other option is this, a crash intubation, which of course is what we've always been doing. But this is a tremendous paradigm shift. It's an attitudinal shift. And sometimes you've got to be heroic enough to say, I'm the patient advocate. This makes sense. I know when to use it. It's to use in a patient who's impossible to manage, and you've only two options crash intubation with a high probability of death, or two minutes of control with a much better opportunity for survival. That's what the delay is all about. The delay is about getting control and getting the PO2 as high as possible.
1: Wow, Walter, you said it better
2: than I ever could myself. I love it. Well, it's a consequence. Listen to your podcast 10 times. <laughs> And hearing your lectures today, I think I finally got it.
0: Dr. Weingart, you had mentioned that there were two patients who didn't require intubation. Some of the other advantages I've heard about DSI is that because you're getting some good pre-oxygenation in there, and maybe it's because of the ketamine a bit, maybe in the patient with asthma, the ketamine might be helping that you might be able to avoid intubation. I mean, what, to what degree do you think this is true? Yeah, I don't promote this. I'm not
1: saying you should start doing this. And we made sure in the paper to say, while this happened, because it was the judgment of the clinicians, uh, we're not recommending it. But off the record, those two cases were both mine. And what you'll have is these really bad asthmatics. I mean, they look like death because their inspiratory muscles are so tired that you just want to put them on non-invasive. And you know, if you can put them on non-invasive and get some nebs in them, they're probably going to be okay. But they start flailing about because they're encephalopathic from their CO2 levels and their hypoxemia, and we will let you do it. So you push the ketamine, you put them on non-invasive, you give continuous nebs through it, and they look beautiful. All of a sudden, they stop fighting. Their sats immediately, immediately come up to 100%, and they're just sitting there so calm and comfortable. You say to yourself, huh, let's see what happens when the ketamine wears off. So at the 20-minute mark, and you stayed at the bedside the entire time with all your intubation equipment and everything you need ready to go, the 20 minute mark, they'll wake up, and in my experience, they usually wake up and they feel great. But if they didn't, if they emerged at that point, intubate them because they've been pre-oxygenating for 20 minutes. They've had nebs for 20 minutes. It's now a safe, controlled intubation, and some of them may avoid the intubation entirely.
0: Yeah, I've I've had a similar experience myself. I've had, I had a patient with exactly that. That I thought, oh, this patient, we're going to be tubing for sure. I gave him a bit of ketamine was going through the delayed sequence intubation steps. And suddenly I was like, wow, they're doing really well. They don't need to be intubated. Back in 2010, I put out a podcast, Episode 8, on emergency airway controversies with Jonathan Sherboneau, Andrew Healy, and Mark Menser. And in it, I criticized delayed sequence intubation. This was just when people were starting to talk about it. Because in my mind, giving one milligram per kilogram of ketamine, which is a sedating dose, but not an induction dose, and then paralyzing the patient was cruel punishment. And there's a chance that the now paralyzed patient might still be aware of what's going on. And I can't imagine anything worse than being paralyzed and awake. So, Dr. Weingart, it's been four years, and now you finally have your chance to set me straight and tell me why I'm wrong the airways are yours. All right. And and this is key because even experienced anesthesiologists,
1: anesthetists, don't understand how ketamine works. And they try to put in the paradigm of typical induction or sedation meds. And it's entirely different. Ketamine is like a switch. Either the patient's dissociated or they're not. And once they are dissociated, they're going to stay dissociated for the entire time while you're intubating this patient. We don't know the exact dose it takes to dissociate any individual patient. And since you see the results of ketamine almost instantly, it's one of those medications that as soon as it hits the brain, you're seeing its full effects. There is no reason not to give a low dose and then follow it with as much additional aliquots of ketamine as necessary to get them dissociated. Once they are dissociated, they will have no awareness. And on the patients in this study, the average dose was between 1 to 1.5 milligrams to get that dissociation. And you'll know because all of a sudden the patient stops moaning they stop moving about, they just fall back on the stretcher, and now their eyes are goggling back and forth, and that patient is dissociated and will have no awareness. To give these patients empirically what was typically the intubating doses, three milligrams a kilogram, four milligrams a kilogram in some countries, puts them at risk of hypersalivation, of increased hyperagenergic surge with no gain. And so I say, start low and titrate. I'm not going to push the paralytic until I've already established I have a fully dissociated patient, at which point I don't worry at all about awareness. I can talk
2: about my personal experience because I have received ketamine at a dose of 1.5 milligram per kilogram myself as a patient. What you don't want the patient to remember is the suffering. When you give somebody ketamine at a dissociating dose, their suffering ends dissociation is really a synonym for not suffering. So when I had the ketamine for the procedure I had it for, I vaguely remember the event, but I was not suffering. It didn't bother me. Once you're associated, you can still be sort of aware, but your suffering ceases. And when there's no suffering, there's nothing all that bad to remember.
0: Ketamine is that world all of its own. So here I'd like to review the steps of delayed sequence intubation. So you've got your delirious patient who's flailing about and you need to sedate them. Make sure you have your nasal prongs on at 15 liters as well as your non-rebreather at 15 liters. You administer ketamine, 1 milligram per kilogram as a slow IV push. If they're not fully dissociated within about 30 to 45 seconds, you can give another 0.5 milligrams of slow IV push. Once the patient is fully dissociated and has reached an oxygen saturation of 95% either with the non-rebreather plus nasal prongs or the BVM and the peep valve with nasal prongs, then you allow them to continue to breathe for three minutes. Then you can administer your paralytic agent and make sure you leave the mask in place until the paralytic has taken full effect. Then finally, you remove the mask and intubate. Well, that about wraps it up for part one of the Weingart Himmel sessions. In part two, we're going to be talking about fluid management in sepsis and post-intubation sedation and analgesia. Remember that on iTunes, you can only get the best case ever's and the journal jams. To get the full episodes automatically downloaded to your phone or your tablet or your desktop or your laptop, you need to go to emergencymedicinecases.com and hit the podcast setup button, and it'll take you through the three or four easy steps to get those automatic downloads to your device. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns about pre-oxygenation, apneic oxygenation, or delayed sequence intubation, please don't hesitate to email me at Anton at emergencymedicinecases.com or post your comments directly on the EM Cases website. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear your own experience with DSI. So please email me any experiences you've had, whether those be good ones or bad ones, so that we can all learn better together. So until next time... Take it easy.